This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Joshua Worth talks about the church Jesus founded. Is there such a thing as a Christian church? Do Catholics follow the Bible? How is Christ present to you? Well, let's find out. Here's Father Joshua Worth. So, Father Joshua, can you help us sort out what the difference is between the Catholic Church and Christian churches? And why are there so many different faiths? Thank you for that question. This question is very difficult because to fully answer this question, you have to understand 2,000 years of church history and 3,000 years of Jewish history and, and worldwide history, not just Europe, but the entire world and the Middle East and all these different areas. So it's very hard to understand, you know, where did all these faiths come from? These faiths that call themselves Christian, where did they all come from? And what is the difference between them? A, the church put out a document, the Catholic Church put out a document in 2000 and, and then later a little clarification in 2002. And they tried to answer this question from kind of a, a theological point instead of a historical point. They tried to say, what is a church? I mean, we all know a church is a building, but we also know it's more than a building that it has a leader usually, that it has a congregation, that it has a book of prayer. So part of it is visible that we can see. Part of it is also invisible that one church, one building can be united with another building. And that building can be united with a whole area. And that whole area can be united with a worldwide movement. So what is a church and how should we define it? So the Catholic Church came out with a document that caused a lot of people to be upset, um, caused a lot of anguish. A lot of Catholics were upset by it. A lot of Protestants were upset by it. And basically what this document said is that there are four ways that Christ is present in an assembly, four ways that Christ is present in our lives. That first way we know from scripture, when Jesus says, where two are gathered in my name, I am there. So he is present in the people and the assembly. Then Catholics and Protestants would agree that the scripture, the canonized scripture of God is the word of God and he is present in that, in that word and that he makes himself known in that word and that he is present in the scripture. But it doesn't stop there. The church continued to go on the ways that Christ is present. Said that the Christ is present in the ordained ministry, holy orders, as we call it in the Catholic Church, and that this is not just something where uh, somebody picks up a Bible and says, I am now a minister, I am now called by God, but instead it was handed on from the apostles, so you have to have an apostolic line. So basically what that means is your church needs to be founded by an apostle, okay, for you to have this, this holy orders. And uh, so 
the Catholic Church draws that line back to St. Peter and St. Paul, the apostle of of the church, you know, the head of the church, Peter, and the apostle of the Gentiles, the missionary spirit, Paul, they both ended up in Rome. They both taught from Rome, sent letters from Rome, and they were both crucified or killed in Rome. Peter was crucified upside down and Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. And that blood we say is, is our foundation. That is where we get our holy orders from. Uh, but there's other apostles, of course. So a lot of the Eastern churches, sometimes we call them the Orthodox churches, they have an apostle that founded them. Right? Maybe St. John founded their church, or maybe St. Matthew. Okay, So they can draw their line of priests and bishops back to an apostle. Then finally, as Jesus taught in the Gospels, that there's a unique presence he has in the world, and that is in the Eucharist, that that is his flesh, and that is his blood, that that is him. And so this document put out these four different things, that... To be a true church, you have to have four presence of Christ available. You have to have the assembly, the people. You have to have the scriptures, the canon of scriptures. You have to have uh, holy orders that traces back to the apostles. And you have to have a proper understanding and proper intention when performing the celebration of the Mass or the Lord's Supper or the institution narrative, as some people call it, that that is truly the real presence of Christ, that Christ is most fully present in the Eucharist under the disguise of bread and wine. But that is that is him, and it remains him, even after the celebration is, is over with, that that still remains the body and blood of Christ and does not revert back to being merely bread and wine. So the Catholic Church said that is how we are going to define church. Church is those four things. So a lot of people are upset by that because that means a lot of things that we've been calling the Protestant churches, you know, the Lutheran church, the Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, all these uh, church of Latter-day Saints, all these churches are not a true church in a definition of the word. And that caused a lot of heartache. That caused a lot of anguish. And, but yet there was still some people out there that said, you know, thank you for this. Some Protestants were saying this. A lot of Catholics were saying this because they wanted to know what is the difference between us? What is the dividing lines? Why do we call call ourselves different things? And this was the answer. So a lot of Protestant scholars even said, now we know where the, the lines of dialogue can go. Now we can discuss. You know, if it's just, if there is no difference, then why do we call ourselves different things? But uh, this is the, the power of defined teaching, that 
many people can come up with, if I asked a hundred different people on the street, what's your definition of church? I can get a hundred different answers, but this is the authoritative teaching of, of the Catholic church. And halfway through, most people agree. People will agree that where you have a body of believers, you have Christ, you have the presence of Christ there. The thing is though, even Protestants will agree that you can't just, you and your family, there's two or more of you and your family, right? You can't just on Sunday morning get together and say, all right, we're going to have church today because there's two or more of us here. And uh, you just talk about your lives and stuff. That's not church. We all know that's not church. And Protestants will agree, you can't just get together with your family and pick up the Bible and pray on Sunday morning and read scriptures. That's not church. I think we all understand that that's not, that's not church. Something missing there. Okay. Where we differ is that Protestants will say, well, we'll get together in a large group with some kind of minister as a head, not necessarily ordained minister, but some kind of leader of prayer. And that leader will then expound upon the biblical teachings for that week, a lesson, if you will, and there'll be some praying and there'll be some songs. And then that's where most Christians would say, that is church. I've now gone to church. I've now experienced and participated in church on Sunday morning. I fulfilled the commandment to celebrate the Lord's day and keep the day holy. Now I've done it. The Catholics would say, no that it's incomplete, that what you're doing is not a bad thing, right? Getting together and studying the scriptures and have one person expounding on the scriptures is not a bad thing. You know, uh, I do that all the time. We, I get together with people and we talk about scriptures and that's Bible study. Studying the Bible, of course, is not a bad thing, but it's not the completion of what God wanted for us, what Christ wanted for us. He wanted something more. One of the things that he wanted more was not just a leader. He wanted a priest. He wanted some kind of delegate of the apostles to be there. Let me uh, read this quote I found from, this is from St. Ignatius of Antioch. And St. Ignatius of Antioch lived um, around 110, I think this was written. So 110, like maybe 20 years after the book of Revelation was written. And it's, it's said that he was, St. Ignatius was a disciple of St. John, that he l- sat at his feet and listened to his direct teaching. And St. Ignatius was captured and was, was taken to his death and on his way to his death, which was over you know many miles away. Uh, many, many weeks away on foot, he was writing letters to all these churches and encouraging them. And he said this to the Trollians, in his letter to the Trollians. He said, in like manner, let all reverence, let all reverence the deacons as an appointment of Jesus Christ and the bishop as Jesus Christ, who is the son of the father and the presbyters as a council of God and assembly of the apostles. Apart from these, there is no church. So what is he pointing out? He's pointing out an apostolic secession, not only apostolic secession, but a hierarchy. 
a hierarchy of clergy, the deacons, the bishop, the presbyters, also known as priests. And he says, without this hierarchy, without this coming from the apostles, that your church, your building was founded by an apostle and then spread throughout the world. If you can't trace your way back to that apostle and those holy orders that came from him, then there is no church. This is a very early teaching. If you don't agree with this teaching, then you have to admit that the church must have been went really wrong really quickly, that there, there was no time when it was teaching the truth because St. John taught, wrote down the book of Revelation 90, and this is 110, 20 years after. And suddenly there's, there's this threefold hierarchy of clergy. And this, this man, you have to admit, is either uh, a martyr for the faith and the bishop of Antioch, or he's a heretic that is leading the people astray. So which one is it? Because he teaches very clearly, let all reverence the deacons and the bishop and the presbyters, which are the priests. Apart from these, there is no church. So this is why when Catholics speak about the Eastern churches, sometimes called the Orthodox churches, we use the term church because they have this. They have this holy orders founded from the apostles. There was a great, what we call a great schism in the year 1000, where there was all the heads of the churches founded by the apostles, including the Pope, had a disagreement, uh, you know, over some theological matters and over um, authority, especially over authority. And there was a great split, and they both went in different directions. But they kept, primarily, they kept the same teaching. And the major teachings that they kept was they kept holy orders and they kept they kept the Eucharist, the teaching on the Eucharist, the real presence of Christ. And because they kept those teachings, we recognize their, that they are a church founded by one of the apostles. And we recognize their sacraments and we recognize their traditions as coming from the apostles. And there was an excommunication placed on their patriarch and a patriarch placed an excommunication on the pope. But with a lot of hard work from our last couple of posts, especially John Paul II, those have been lifted and a lot of dialogue has been going on to try to unite the two, unite that schism, unite that, uh, what St. John Paul II said, the two lungs of the church, the East and the West, with the Roman, with the descendant of St. Peter being in Rome, and the descendants of the other apostles being in the East, that those were the complete church and he wanted to reunify them because for the most part, all the theology is in place. The big sticking point is authority. Now, what does it mean that Peter and the successor to Peter, the Pope, is the head of the, head of the apostles? What does that mean? What does that look like? Is it just a term, or does it mean that he has special authority over the other other apostles? Of course, the East wants to keep its its own freedoms, its own kind of individuality, so to speak. 
and they're all national churches. They're all based out of out of countries. They're not based like the Catholic churches out of one place as the head, and then every, all the other places united to that head. They're they're based more out of countries. So even if you are in America and you belong, and you but you're from Armenia or something, you belong to the Armenian Orthodox Church. You can't escape that, even if uh, you wanted to. You'll always be part of that. Where if you're Catholic, you can travel all over the world, and you just belong to the Latin Rite, the Catholic, the the Western part of the Church. So that was what we call the Great Schism, and that's being worked out as we speak. Then there is the fourth way that Jesus is present, and that is, of course, in the most holy Eucharist, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. That That is the bloodless sacrifice of the Lamb when we celebrate the Feast of the Lamb, the Wedding Feast of the Lamb. We celebrate the crucifixion. We celebrate the Last Supper every time we celebrate Mass. And those last two are are totally dependent on each other. You can't have the real presence without having proper holy orders, right? So uh, one thing that some people bring up is, what about the Anglican Church? Is it is it a schism or is it a Protestant? And from what I, the little bit of reading I have done on it, it looks like it started as a schism, meaning that it's holy orders since most of the priests and bishops in England went with Henry VIII when he broke off from the church, that they had valid orders. But sometime shortly after that, and so they were able to, to celebrate mass and celebrate the sacrifice of the mass and the real presence, bring about the real presence of Christ. And but shortly after that, they change their ordination and they change the intention of holy orders and the intention of the Eucharist. And if you look in, if you really want to look this up, you can look up the 39 Articles of Faith, which makes it pretty clear what is holy orders and what is the Eucharist. And they say uh, Eucharist is not a sacrifice, that it it does not help have any benefit for the dead, that it does not remain the real presence of Christ afterwards. And because they changed what their intention was when they uh, of the Eucharist, they've now changed the intention of the priesthood. A priest is called to offer sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice to offer, then he's not a priest. So when they said... The Eucharist is not a sacrifice. They changed the priesthood from a priesthood to a presider that presides and leads. So that's why the Anglican Church and Episcopalian Church we would consider to be uh, a Protestant denomination and not a schismatic church as we do with the with the Eastern churches. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. We'll be right back with more from Father Joshua Wirth on Double-Edged Sword. We're back on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. with Father Joshua Wirth. 
the church Jesus founded. Let's talk a little bit more about the Reformation and what that means and what happened there. Because there was a great scandal. I mean, everybody admits that. There was horrible things going on. You know, priests who had taken promises of celibacy, had mistresses, and they had children out of wedlock. And not only did they do that, they flaunted it and they celebrated it. And they had their mistresses drove around these wonderful carriages. And there was even popes that had mistresses that, that ran havoc in in Rome and had, were power players. And you had to get through them and pass them. And the children of these priests were given lots of money and titles and nepotism ran wild and were uneducated, but because their dad used to be a priest that they, they can now be, you know, ahead of something and get, get a stipend or some money for it. And, and there was just all kinds of, of mess things going on. Now, what should good Christian people do in that case? Well, let's look at what Jesus taught because there was the same scandal going on in the Jewish religion when he was around. If you look at Matthew 23, the fir- from the very first verse there, Matthew 23, verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Therefore, do and observe all things whatsoever they tell you. But do not follow their example, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to carry, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they will not lift a finger to move them. And it just goes on and on, how they widen their phylacteries, and how they love places of honor, and how they love being called master and rabbi, and all these things. And so many people uh, from will look back on at the time of the Reformation and say, that's what was going on, terrible abuse. And because there was terrible abuse in the church, it must mean that they had the wrong teaching, that they had gone off the path. And therefore, we must move the church back onto the path, reform it. But they forget the first part of Jesus' teaching where he said, the scribes and the Pharisees have taken their seat on the chair of Moses. Now, what is the chair of Moses? It's kind of like the chair of Peter, that they are the successors of Moses. And the Pope is a successor of Peter. Therefore, going back to Jesus now, therefore do and observe all things whatsoever they tell you, so that their teaching is correct. That God, even in the Old Testament, going into the New Testament, has protected their teaching. What he hasn't protected, though, because of free will, is that he has not protected their practice. He has not protected them falling into sin. Okay? So Jesus does not say, and never says to his apostles, you need to break away from the Jewish people. You need to start something new, right? You need to, you need to separate yourself from that stuff. No, instead... He says, do whatever they tell you, but don't do what they do. So this is a teaching that directly can relate to the scandal of the Middle Ages, right? Around the time of the Reformation. 
because believe believe me there's plenty of it was a battle between saints and sinners on both sides and there's plenty of saints in the church that were scandalized by this as well but they knew that God protected the teaching of whoever sat in the seat of of authority which was the chair of St. Peter just as God protected the teachings of those who sat in the chair, the seat of Moses. He said, listen to their teachings, but don't do what they do. And we can see that, that the popes, no matter how, how corrupt they were, never changed the teachings. They never came out and said, oh, there's a fourth person of the Trinity, all right? Or they added something to the creed or something like that. No, they knew better than that. They, in their own private lives... They were scoundrels, but they never touched the teaching that had been handed on to them. Another charge for the Reformation against Catholics is that they didn't follow the Bible. They didn't use the Bible. They didn't know the Bible, right? But people forget the historicity of that time period. The time period was nobody could read the Bible. Illiteracy was was huge. Plus... Many people didn't have a Bible because they were so expensive. We didn't have the printing press yet, okay? So it cost a lot of money. So maybe one one person in the house, the head of the house, he could get up enough money to buy one Bible, and that's the family Bible, and it sat in a room, place of respect. And if you, wanted to, and if you were educated and you could read, you could go over and read that. But for the most part, Catholics used art, and use statues and use devotions such as a rosary and used oral teaching to hand on the faith to people. They didn't use a printed word because, one, people couldn't read. Two, it wasn't available. That's what makes the Reformation so much different than, than the other 1,500 years of church history. It's because there's been people before that had their own ideas and had their own interpretations of the Bible and they tried to start their own sects, you know, what we call heretics, right? And they were short-lived and not very widespread because people couldn't read. And people couldn't and you couldn't print anything, right? You had to hand copy everything. So they had to do it by making a small like Jesus did, making a small group of disciples and then sending those disciples out to preach. And then the church did the same thing. The saints would start an order, and they would train people, and they would go out there to preach against the heresies and then squash the heresies, okay? So what the reason that the Reformation really took off is now literacy was up, and people could print their own tracts, their own letters. Luther could print his own letters and wide distribution of them, okay? So the idea that Catholics didn't want people to read the Bible— is just nonsense. Catholics love the Bible. We existed, the Catholic Church existed before the Bible was ever written. It was Catholics who made the Bible, who wrote down the Bible. It was Catholics who put the Bible, the books of the Bible together. It was Catholics who hand copied the Bible after it had been used up and they'd hand copy it. Monks would hand copy it again with love and devotion. We love scripture and, we're, and it's only because of our love of scripture, the Catholic love of scripture, that there is a Bible here 2,000 years later. But the reason that the Reformation really took off was because of, that people were more educated, could read, 
and the printing press. All right. So to recap, to be a fully alive church, you have to have all four of those things. You have to have the assembly, of course. You have to have the canon of scripture. You have to have the holy orders from that you can trace back to one of the apostles. And you have to have the real presence, the Eucharist. Only then, that's when we say, I'm going to church. It's when you're going to meet with the people on Sunday morning to listen to the scriptures where Christ is present with the people, Christ is present in the scriptures, to let the holy uh, man with holy orders ordained clergy lead us in those things, lead us in worship. And then he can bring about the sacrifice of the mass, bring about the real presence of Christ fully in the Eucharist. That's going to church. That's belonging to a church. If you have all four of those things. So, but this isn't how the modern world thinks about it. The modern world thinks about things in the term of religion. What's your religion, right? I belong, so many people say, I belong to the Christian religion. There is no such thing as a Christian religion. Do you know where religion comes from? The word religion comes from the rule of. Jesus never found a religion. He didn't start a religion because there was no exact rules to follow. You know, Muslims have a religion because they got eight, the eight pillars of Islam that they have to follow, right? But Jesus' rules were a lot more vague. He said, follow my commandments. If you love me, follow my commandments. Do unto others as, they, as you would want them to do unto you. So they were a little more vague. Instead, he started a church. And Catholics sometimes get accused of being arrogant or condescending when we say, when people ask us, who started your church? We say, Jesus did. That when he said to Peter, you are rock. Peter just said to him, you are Christ. And, and Jesus turned to him and said, you are rock. And upon this rock, I shall build my church. And Jesus didn't say that to anybody else. He didn't say that to me. He didn't say that to you. He didn't say it to St. John. He didn't say it to the women who, who said, you are the Christ. Right? He didn't say it to Ma Mary Magdalene when she said, I know that you are the Christ, the one who's coming into the world. He only said that to Peter. And so we, as Catholics, believe that Jesus founded one church. Instead of on the seat of Moses, now it's on the chair of Peter. And there is no Christian religion. Religion comes to follow the rule of. So for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, of the Catholic Church, if you ask somebody, what is your religion? It meant what religious order of monks or nuns do you belong to? Because you're asking them, what rule do you follow? Whose rule do you follow? Do you follow the rule of St. Francis? Are you Franciscan? Do you follow the rule of St. Dominic? Do you follow the rule of St. Vincent? Do you follow the rule of all these different saints who started these religious orders? And they had exact rules. They had rules like stability. They had rules like you pray eight hours a day, you work eight hours a day, you sleep eight hours a day. They had exact rules of how their order was supposed to be set up. So to ask somebody, what religion are you, was to ask them what order of monks or nuns do you belong to. But after Reformation, that changed in, in people's vernacular, in people's speech. Because now when they were asking, what rule do you follow, 
they were asking, do you follow the rule of Martin Luther? Or do you follow the rule of John Calvin? Or do you follow the rule of Wesley? Or do you follow the rule of Zwingli? Or do you follow the rule of Joseph Smith? Now, it's broken off into all kinds of different rules of. So there is no Christian religion. There is a church that Christ founded with which um, St. Antioch in 110, in one of his other letters said, called this the Catholic Church, meaning that it's universal, meaning that it applies to everyone. You can't say, well, I'm from Germany, and so I follow the Lutheran Church. No, Catholic Church applies to you as well. You're called to the Catholic Church. Well, I'm, I'm a Native American, so I follow my tradition. The Catholic Church calls to you, too. This is the church that is universal, meaning that it is true in all times and all places for all people. There's nobody that is not called to it. There's nobody that's exempt from it. There's nobody that Jesus does not want in, in it. He did not make up a set of rules for one person and, and people and a set of rules for another. It's universal. There's a universal call to it. Even if we found space aliens tomorrow, the Catholic Church would start sending missionaries there because people would say, well, what about their traditions? What about their beliefs? We say it doesn't matter. The, the universal call is to the Catholic Church. The universal church is true even in outer space. We would, we would tell the aliens, Jesus died so you can have eternal life. I know. That's how much we believe it. That's how powerful it is to us, okay? So, there is no Christian religion. Uh, there is only the church, the church that Jesus founded. So, how do I know this? I know this because St. Paul talks about it. St. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Where St. Paul says, and this is, this is a good quote because Protestants, a lot of Protestants who know the Bible back to front don't know this quote. Where St. Paul says, but if I should be delayed, you should know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So what is St. Paul saying is the foundation of truth. So Jesus is truth, right? He said, I am the truth. So where, from what place, what position is Jesus teaching from? Where does he stand? Where is his foundation? Where is his pillar, his bulwark from which he teaches? St. Paul tells us the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. St. Paul tells us that he teaches from the church, that Jesus teaches from the church. St. Paul also talks about scripture and how it is, it is edifying, it is encouraging, and is good for correcting people. But he doesn't call it the foundation of truth. He saves that for the church. And so we can ask ourselves, well, what church is he talking about? Which church would, at this time, would St. Paul be talking about? Is he talking about the, the rule of Luther? Is he talking about the religion of Calvin? Is he talking about the religion of Zwingli? Is he talking about the religion of Joseph Smith? Is he talking about the religion of Wesley? Or is he talking about the one church that Jesus founded on Peter? We have to understand that at this time, when St. Paul is writing the scripture, he doesn't ha he's writing the New Testament. He doesn't have it. He is the New Testament. So 
this church must not be based on scripture. Does that make sense? We didn't wait. The church did not wait for scripture to be written so it could be based off of it. Instead, the church through the apostles started teaching and those teachings are the traditions that were handed on from one generation to the next. Just as God protected the teachings of the evangelists, of the gospel writers, some of them with which were not apostles, Luke and Mark were not apostles, yet Jesus protected their teaching. Now, as that tradition is handed on from one generation to the next, from bishop to bishop to priest to bishop again, as it's handed on and on and on from Pope to Pope to Pope, they're not apostles, they're successors to the apostles. And just to how Jesus protected the teachings of the evangelists, he now protects the teachings of the apostles that they're handed from generation to generation to generation. This is the truth. This is the foundation from which the truth Jesus teaches from, from the church. And the scriptures is a part of that tradition. But his church is not based off scriptures. It can't be because it existed before scriptures. You see that? So what does it mean today? What it means is how is Christ present in your life? How is he fully a present in your life? Are you a Christian without a church? Then you are separated from the full presence of Christ because there is no Christian religion. There's only the church that he founded. So you can have different levels of his presence in your life. You can have the camaraderie of a community of believers, but you can have that in your own home. Right? You can have that on a street corner. You can have the presence of Christ in the scriptures, but look how many different ways Christ has been manipulated. His teachings have been manipulated in the scriptures. Some people read it and they see abortion in there. Some people read it and they see gay marriage in there. Some people read it and they see divorce in there. It's only in the Catholic Church where we have handed on holy orders, the sacrament of holy orders, from bishop to bishop to bishop, from the apostle, from Jesus to the apostles to the bishop, to on and on and on to this present day to the priests. There, we have someone who has the authority that Jesus handed on to the apostles, I send you as a father has sent me, the authority not only to forgive sins, but to make present the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And there is a true, full presence of Christ. So if you don't have that, then you don't have the full presence of Christ in your life. As Jesus so many times told us, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life within you. The fullness of life. So we have a different way of thinking now. We tend to think if people aren't holy, then they must not have true teaching. So as soon as we find somebody and they and they seem to be a holy person, they're an energetic person, and they, and they give great motivational talks and speaking, we say, that person must have the true teaching because his life is holy. And then that person falls, and we say, oh, that person must not be have the true teaching, because if they had the true teaching, they would not have fallen. And so we go on to the next one, and the next, and that's why you see so many divisions in Protestant communities as they are 
they follow one person and then they follow the next and that person falls and they follow the next and, and then they split off from that. And they say, that must not have been the true teaching. Where is it? Where is it? And they all have the Bible, but it doesn't matter. They keep on going from, from preacher to preacher to preacher, hoping that the next one will have the true teaching. That's not how it works. How it works is Christ has the true teaching. He's handed on to, to the apostles and he protects their teaching, but he doesn't protect their behavior. How do we know that? Because Judas fell in practice, not in teaching. He fell in practice. He fell because of free will. He fell because he sinned. He fell away from God. And I think Jesus picked Judas to show all of us, listen, this isn't based on your holiness. My truth, my saving power, my sacraments is not based on your holiness. It's based on me. This is Jesus talking. It's based on him. And where I am most fully is the saving power of me. Where Jesus is most fully, where he is there in the assembly, where he's there in the scriptures, where he's there in the priest, where he's there in the Eucharist. That is the power to save, not any actions of a minister. That's why people fall away. That's why people run away because they don't see the holiness of the church. They understand it's one. They understand it's apostolic. They understand that it's Catholic, that it's universal, but they don't see the holiness. And they say, if I don't see the holiness, then it must not be the true teaching. No. Jesus warned us in Judas. Jesus picked Judas. Did Jesus make a mistake? No. He picked Judas in order to warn us that my true teaching does not rely, does not depend on the actions of men. My true teaching is not dependent on men. And it's not dependent on the scriptures. My true teaching is going to reside in the church that I founded. And I'm going to protect that church. And people are going to betray my church just as Judas betrayed me, but it does not change the fact that I'm going to protect my church. So the only people that are going to be saved at the end of time that we know of is the church, the church that Jesus founded. That the gates of hell will not prevail again. So the question to ask yourself is not, how do I be a Christian? Is not, how do I follow Christ? It's, how do I belong to the church that he founded? That's when I'm closest to Christ when I'm following his teachings that he's protected in his church, not the example of his ministers, but in his church that he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is not a religion. It's not a cult. It's not a system of ethics. It wasn't just a great teacher. It wasn't just a great philosopher. Jesus is God. God founded a church and sinners have almost destroyed it a thousand times over from inside and out but he promised us this would never happen until he comes again so if you want to save your soul then belong to the church that will never be destroyed i want to thank you and i want to remind everybody to pray for their priests and to support the faith wherever you find it and may Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Let us know what you thought of this show by going to dvmercy.com and click on the Double-Edged Sword icon. The comment button is in the middle of the page. And folks, as baptized Catholics, we're all called to evangelize, but not all of us can stand on the street corner and do so. However, if you donate to this station, together we can fulfill our baptismal call to evangelize. It's easy. Just go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate. Or, as you're listening to one of the stations on the Divine Mercy phone app, touch the red box in the left-hand corner and you'll see a Donate button there also. Thank you in advance. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg and Salina, 88.1 KRTT Great Band, and 88.1 KVDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.